Back in 1927, there was a writer for Life magazine. His name was Robert E. Sherwood, Mm -hmm. a reviewer for Life magazine. And in 1927, Sherwood wrote, The film was fraught with tremendous significance, and I, for one, suddenly realized that the end of the silent drama is in sight. Yeah. People were delirious when suddenly he turns and talks to them. And there's that scene where he's at the piano and he's talking to his mother and there's all this banter and he's making it up. Mm -hmm. They're just making it up on the spot, Mm ad-libbing, but very charming. You're listening to The Sill Podcast, perspectives on art and technology with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 84, Transcendent Tunes, Jolson Rocks. Rock-a-bye, you're rock-a-bye, baby, with that big melody. You ain't heard nothing yet. <laughs> Why does that sound familiar? The immortal words of Al Jolson and the jazz singer and incorporated the first synchronized speech and music in a feature film. And that was back in 1927. 27. Wow. It was a very good year. I'm sorry, I meant to Frank, but we're not doing Frank today. No, we're doing Al. We're doing Al Jolson, otherwise known as Asa Jolson. Born in 1886 in Lithuania, which at the time Mm was a governorate of the Russian Empire. So he was essentially Russian-born, brought over by his father to the U.S. at the age of eight, Mm -hmm. settling in Washington, D.C. And his father was a rabbi and a cantor. So obviously he had music in his life, music in his ears, as his father would do his prayers at the synagogue. Mm -hmm. He'd be hearing all that stuff. So he had a great musical ear and was very talented as a young man. And eventually got out into vaudeville. With his brother, they formed a team, his brother Hirsch or Harry, Mm -hmm. and they were a team, Al and Harry Jolson. So his whole young life was all about kind of finding his way in that world of vaudeville, of theater, and he ends up eventually in Doc Stater's minstrel show where he would be wearing blackface. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people remember Al Jolson as that guy who did blackface when he sang. And now he wasn't always in blackface when he sang. But people remember that because it was such a stark, what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) From the modern point of view, blackface is just a kind of a strange, almost disrespectful, shocking thing. Mm -hmm. But back in the 1920s or at the turn of the century, it was a theatrical device that was used in part to give the sort of the cultural life of black Americans some vibration on the stage because black Americans weren't allowed on stages of theaters. Make white people look like they were black. They turned white people into black people, Mm -hmm. adopted their black people's mannerisms, Mm -hmm. as Al Jolson did. When you hear this song that we're highlighting today on our Transcendent Tunes, which is Rockabye Your Baby with a Dixie melody. Melody. He puts on this almost black American sound, his shtick. But he sounded like that no matter what song he sang. Mm -hmm. And you wonder whether that was intentional or part of his uh, performing. Yeah, I wonder whether he gravitated towards that because he really enjoyed listening to black jazz musicians and Mm -hmm. blues music, etc. And so he was drawing from those traditions. And actually the black community liked listening to his music. That's right. 
They really liked it, and they thought he was kind of supporting their mm -hmm. cause in a way, and he literally did support their cause by supporting the push for black actors to be on the stage, to have films with black actors in them. He would take black actors out to lunch yep. in full view of people who were disdainful of that whole thing. So he was a big supporter of black actors in the black movement in America, and mm -hmm. people don't understand that today. Sometimes you see notes on YouTube under his videos, racist. I know. And they don't understand where he came from and what he was doing. Mm -hmm. Other people said that his being a Jew was part of it, where he was actually kind of bringing together the suffering and mm -hmm. of the Jewish community with the black American community, and that that was part of what he was doing there too. The whole racial inequality thing. Yeah. So he was not making fun. He was not doing anything like that. He was no. basically doing something that A, was part of the theater scene in those days and considered quite normal, and B, supported by the black community. Yeah. And I think that's very important because so many people thought he was ridiculing the blacks. Yeah, it is strange because here's this Lithuanian-born Jew singing these songs like in Rockabye Your Baby about Dixie, about the South, the, South, the yeah. Mason-Dixon line, mm -hmm. talking about Mammy. What white boy would be talking about Mammy in that way mm -hmm. other than Al Jolson back then? So he brought forward that part of the culture to white America in a big way. Mm -hmm. So we're going to kind of talk a bit about him. And we're going to talk about the tune, because in some ways, it wouldn't have mattered which tune we chose. There, he had he, many. He had many big hits. Mm -hmm. In fact, he was so popular, he was considered the greatest entertainment of his time in That's the 1920s. Right. Greatest entertainer in the world. Mm -hmm. And he was by far the highest paid entertainer That's in right. the world. At one point, he was getting $1,000 a week. Right. We're talking 1918. And what does that translate into money now? We're probably mm -hmm. talking $10,000 a week. Yeah. And he scintillated audiences mainly because he was so alive and so enthusiastic and melodramatic mm -hmm. and romantic. And he belted his songs out. He had to belt them he out. He had to belt them out. They had no microphones. No mics. In yeah, those days. That's right. So the whole sound thing is interesting. You had to project. Yeah. And you can talk a bit about sort of how sound crept into or the evolution of sound work in those days. Well, Jolson's an interesting man, not only in terms of being a performer, but his timing and the time that he actually begins this whole process. Yeah. It completely coincides with the development of the radio. Marconi in 1902 mm -hmm, invents mm -hmm. the radio. Yeah. This is around the time that he's beginning to get his feet wet as a youngster in his teens, and he's singing. At that time, there were no microphones. There were no electronic amplification systems at all in existence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So every performance had to be belted out so that people in the rear could hear you. Right. So that, I think, really developed his ability to enunciate mm -hmm. and to project his voice, which was perfect for the animation that he also brought with it. Yeah. You see his moves. Mm -hmm. Well, some of his moves, my wife and I were watching one of his clips, and she went, oh, my God, that's a Michael Jackson move. <laughs> if you look at the list of performers who cite him as one of the first entertainers that they watched as children, mm -hmm, including mm -hmm. the likes of Van Halen, of all people. Van Halen, um, Cher, yes. Aretha Franklin, Jerry Lewis, Jerry Lewis, who recorded a version of that song, and it came into the top 10 of thing 1950-something. Mm -hmm. It was in the top 10. 
So a lot of people have recorded this tune, Rockabye Your Baby, and grew up with Al Jolson. I grew up with Al Jolson. I used to have a bunch of Al Jolson 78s. 78s? Yeah, which I had for a long, long time and played them. Do you remember the weight okay. of those discs? Yeah, they're really heavy. They could be yeah. great weapons. Sturdy things. Sturdy, yeah. By 1927, by the jazz singer, he's world famous, the entertainer of entertainers. Mm -hmm. And he made movies after that that weren't quite as successful in the late 20s, 30s. And then his career began to go on a bit of a slide. It started to kind of fade a bit. Mm -hmm. And as he faded, the likes of Bing Crosby started to emerge. Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra comes into the picture. The crooners, who also had microphones to work with. That's right. And they could do these intimate ballads and such mm -hmm. that people loved and drove the women well, crazy. Well, they could do it because they could lower their voices and the amplification took care of the rest. Exactly. Whereas Jolson had to do all these modulations mm -hmm. And he does them brilliantly in many of these songs. He had to do them kind of on the spot, on the stage, without a microphone. Really, really accomplished. And he would have learned a lot of that stuff, that projection stuff, from his father again in the synagogue, exactly. right? Exactly. Because the rabbi has to project. He's got a big congregation to reach. They didn't have microphones either. So he would have learned that stuff from his father. And there's also the skills you're learning in live performances. Everything yeah. is live. Nothing's recorded. That's right. Yeah. And that phrase, you ain't heard nothing yeah. yet, he comes back to that over and over again in his career because people expected him to say that. You know? Actually, specifically, that phrase was in The Jazz Singer. Yes, it was. In 1927. That's right. And that was the first time that moviegoers heard a synchronized voice. Right. And they actually began to applaud when he stopped speaking. And throughout the movie, the audiences would roar with applause. And The Jazz Singer was not the first actual sound movie. It was the first talkie with synchronized voice and music. Okay. There was a movie in the year before 1926 called Don Juan, which failed commercially. It had some audio in it for effects and so on, but it was not synchronized. The Jazz Singer became officially the first talkie movie right. in 1927. And interestingly, back then... It cost about $500,000 to make. However, the important thing to note with that movie is the $500,000 investment paid back $3.5 so seven times mm -hmm. what it cost to make. Do you have that quote anywhere where you quoted a character who was there at the time, who talked about the audience? Yes. Its response? Pull that up. There was a writer. His name was Robert E. Sherwood, mm -hmm. a reviewer for Life magazine. And in 1927, Sherwood wrote... The film was fraught with tremendous significance, and I, for one, suddenly realized that the end of the silent drama is in sight. Yeah. People were delirious when suddenly he turns and talks to them. And there's that scene where he's at the piano and he's talking to his mother, and there's all this banter, and he's making it up. Mm -hmm. They're just making it, it up on the spot, ad-libbing, mm -hmm. but very charming. And, and they kept it in the film. Yeah, very schmaltzy. And stuff. He kisses he says, her. That's right. He says, shut your eyes. I want to steal something from you. Steals the kiss. And he steals the kiss. He says, don't worry, I'll give it back. <laughs> yeah. He was very affable. Yeah. Really likable and exuberant about life. I think that's what drew people to him. 
always has this joyfulness, even when he was singing the saddest songs. And in fact, in Rockabye, Your Baby, he says, Weep no more, my lady, sing that song again for me. And old Black Joe, just as though you had me on your knee. Well, Weep No More, My Lady and Old Black Joe were tunes, mm-hmm. sad, sad tunes from the South. Mm-hmm. And this is maybe one of the few songs ever written that refers to other songs right. by title in the tunes. We should mention that the song Rockabye Your Baby with the Dixie Melody was written by Gene Schwartz, Joe Young, and Sam M. Lewis, the writing team mm-hmm. there. So he didn't write that song. In fact, a lot of his tunes were written by George Gershwin, yes, Irving Berlin. He was a singer, not a writer. Yeah. Irving Berlin, I think, wrote uh, Mammy mm-hmm. as well for him and Swanee. Swanee, how I love you. How I... That was, uh, I think, Irving Berlin. Well, and actually, the movie, too, that he did in 1927, it was actually being performed as a play for many years before that. That's right. Yes, it became a film. So his career kind of ebbed a bit in the 30s, early 40s, and then... The war, I guess, began. World War II, 1939. It happened. And uh, he was one of the first performers to go over and entertain the troops. Mm -hmm. That was a first for him. And and then when Korea happened in the 50s, he was the first American performer to go over and perform for them. Yeah, and that was kind of the beginning and the end of his road. Yeah, he died in 1950. Which is the beginning Uh, of the Korean War. Yeah, right after his Mm -hmm. tour of Korea. Crazy, crazy performance schedule. Yeah, something like 40 performances in 16 days, something like that. They they attributed exhaustion to one of the reasons for him dying when he got back. Yeah, he was only 64 when he passed away. But prior to that, he made a comeback. They made two films about him. One was the Al Jolson story, Story, right? And Jolson Sings Again. Mm -hmm. And those two films, when you watch them... In the 40s, right? In 1946 and Mm -hmm. 49. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't starring in them. His voice was starring and this fellow named Parks, I forget his first name, the actor... Played him. Played him brilliantly in the film. Except for one scene where Jolson played himself, but they shot it from a distance and he was in blackface and doing his moves on Mm -hmm. his runway in a theater. So you couldn't tell who it was. But those two films kind of brought him back into prominence and made him world famous again. Box, box. So what's your story? Oscar, Oscar, do you know what you're playing? Do I know? It's one of the greatest song hits you ever sang. Yes, sir. Takes me back to the old winter garden. I remember the scene well. It was a cotton plantation, and I was singing to my mammy. Rock-a-bye, your baby, with a Dixie melody. When you croon, croon a tune. From the heart of Dixie Just hang my cradle Mammy mine Right on that mason Dixon line And swing it from Virginia To Tennessee with all The love that's in you Again for me, and old black Joe, just as though you heard me on your knee. 
baby kisses I'm gonna deliver The minute that you sing that Oh, sweet river Rock-a-bye You're rock-a-bye, baby With a Dixie Melody Fox, Fox a lot of people refer to him as the Elvis Presley of the 20s. Yeah, in a way. Yeah. And those moves, yeah, reminded me of Presley and Michael Jackson, all those things, because he was so animated and his legs and hips were moving. Yeah. It's almost funny. It's almost comical the way he moves, right? There's a lightness to it. Oh, totally. It's yeah. as if he wants to do a jig or it's something. It's like he's uh, walking the yellow brick road. It's like a Julie Garland-esque, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah. Hank contains like kicking yeah. up his heels, right, so exactly. to speak. Really wonderful, wonderful. And so he led a very interesting wonderful life. Uh, married four times. Four times. Right. One of them being Keeler. Ruby Keeler, a famous silent film actress. Mm -hmm. No children of his own, all adopted. That's right. He adopted three children. But I'd like to just say something about this song. The fact that it's about the South. He's talking about Dixie. He's talking about hanging my cradle, mammy mine, right on that Mason-Dixon line. And swing it from Virginia to Tennessee with all the love that's in ya. Mm -hmm. It's not like he traveled the South and met all these people and stuff. It just... Obviously, he tapped right? into something that was appealing to him as well. And yeah. maybe, who knows, it could have also been a marketing ploy for all we know or been part of it. But it didn't seem that way. No, not at all. And people were enthralled by it. Well, especially during the Depression, right? He was in the Depression years. Yep. He was peaking just before the onset of the Depression, 1929. That's right. He did a lot of radio and television. He was the most popular male vocalist in 1948 by a poll in Variety mm -hmm. magazine. So a long, illustrious career. 100,000 people came to see him at Soldier Field. Right. 100,000 people. In Chicago? In Chicago. Yeah. Wow. At the Oriental Theater with Georgie Jessel, 10,000 people had to be turned away. Mm -hmm. So his popularity was skyrocketing. I find it interesting that... I think probably after, I don't know, 1960 or something, not even 10 years after his death, mm -hmm. his name just kind of dropped away. Yeah. People don't think about Jolson very much or didn't yeah. mention him very much. Well, the 60s was a huge transitional time in music. Yeah. There was a lot going on. On top of the British invasion, there was a lot of development, even within the States. Right. And speaking about the shift... Mm -hmm. We're talking about the music, we're talking about the man, his art form, and so on. But it was also a very pivotal time in technology shifts. This man entered the business with the invention of the radio. Right. And by the time he was through, they were on the cusp of developing four-track recording, which was being used by the Beatles and made famous by a lot of artists that we know today. Right. So he went through, even in the recording process, for example, he went from no microphone, what they call the acoustic era, to the electric era, to the magnetic era. He mm -hmm. never quite made it to the digital era, which began in about 1975, as we know it. But he crossed three eras of mm -hmm. technological developments in audio. Yeah. Amazing. And had to adjust and adapt to each. But it almost didn't matter what was no. put in front of him. He always sort of exuded that same joy for living. And, mm -hmm. and I think he really loved to sing. Some singers you listen to, and they're very adept. They have a very high craft. Right. But you don't get the sense that the they 
Love soul, it. The soul. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, but he embodied those songs. That's why his movements were so full, because he couldn't contain himself. Yeah, he was joyous. Right? Totally joyous. And the music was almost incidental to the joy that he was giving his audience at the time, mm-hmm. which I think is a wonderful thing. I actually think it was performers like him that really gave the creative end of the Hollywood people the idea of musicals. I really believe, emanated from individuals like him. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, the jazz singer really was a forerunner to a lot of musical films mm-hmm. that followed after that. And as you say, as the sound technology improved, it was easier and easier to produce quality yeah. films. That 1927 performance performance says on the Vitaphone system, apparently they had to record every single song he sang on a separate kind of That's contraption right. or disc. And then the projector would have to kind of slot that in at exactly the right moment. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the whole thing would be out of sync. Well, just to give you an idea without getting into the technical details, there were 15 film and 15 audio reels that had to be synchronized to make an 89-minute film. Yeah, imagine that. And the projectionist had to be able to thread the film and cue up the Vitaphone mm. records very quickly. In one slip-up, and the whole thing is kablooey. Mm. But within a couple of years, that technology was completely cleaned up and perfected, and basically uh, very little change in the film industry between 1930 and 1960 in terms of working audio and film together. Yeah, yeah. And as I said, it doesn't matter what the technology was. His voice Mm -hmm. was very unique. I have never heard anybody else ever sound like Al Jolson. The jazz singer film was remade, I think, in 1980 or 1980 something. with Neil Diamond. With Neil Diamond. Laurence Olivier. Right. Uh, wasn't right. Uh, Lucy in that, too? Lucy Arnaz. Lucy yes, Arnaz. Yes, she was in it as well. It yeah. reflected real life because uh, he right. actually was the son of a cantor. Neil Diamond. Yeah. So it echoed Jolson's story mm-hmm. very well. Yeah, I remember seeing that film and really enjoying it. Got yeah. good reviews. Yeah. And Diamond didn't try to sound like Jolson. No. He just sounded like himself. Right. So it's just a parallel storyline. The actual premiere of The Jazz Singer was chosen to coincide with Yom Kippur. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, because it's a Jewish holiday around which much of the uh, movie's plot revolves. Oh, okay. I get it. I get it. <laughs> yeah. Those Hollywood types, they're so clever at their marketing. And just a small aside that we didn't talk about was that even though the Warner Brothers were instrumental in producing this film with Zanuck, right? That's right, Daryl Zanuck. So, but none of the Warner Brothers were able to attend the actual premiere. And they were among the strongest advocates for Vitaphone, which is the technology they used to make the film. Mm-hmm. And the strongest of the brothers who advocated Vitaphone actually had died the previous day of uh-huh. pneumonia. Wow. And the surviving brothers had returned to California for his funeral. <laughs> Pretty cool. Uh, some of his other hits we haven't really talked about. That's right, you know, Mammy, Mammy, Swanee. how I love you. Swanee, how I love you, how I love you. Uh, what's that one going back to California? California, here, here I, I come. come. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think Judy Garland. Hey, actually, do you rec- some, something else on the side. Do you recall as a kid watching some of the uh, Saturday morning animations, the cartoons? Yes. Do you recall some of the really old cartoons that featured characters that were made to look like him? 
Well, no, I didn't. The cartoons. Really? Because when I hear these songs, I, I somehow imagine some of them in these animations. Well, I know uh, the Looney Tunes. You'd have right. Robert Mitchum. You'd have these caricatures of these actors and musicians. That's right. In there, so and I'm pretty sure been, uh, Jolson was in one. Of oh them. no doubt. Sure. Yeah. You think about Mickey Mouse with his white gloves right. and his black face. That's, that's kind of Jolson. You know yeah, what I mean? it is. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> you think about it, a singing, black-faced, white-gloved little guy. Yep. <laughs> that was yep. Jolson, right? Um, one of the things that was quoted too, I'm not sure who this quote comes from, but it says here, for the white minstrel man to put on the cultural forms of blackness was to engage in a complex affair of manly mimicry. To wear or even enjoy blackface was literally, for a time, to become black, to inherit the cool, virility, humility, abandon, or gaieté de cœur that were the prime components of white ideologies of black manhood. Mm. So people have tried to kind of explain why this was okay Mm -hmm. for many, many people and that it wasn't a racist act or an act of derision or something like that. But the opposite side was also expressed, quote, blackface evokes memories of the most unpleasant side of racial relations and of an age in which white entertainers used the makeup to ridicule black Americans while brazenly borrowing from the rich black musical traditions that were rarely allowed direct expression in mainstream society. Mm -hmm. This is heavy baggage for Al Jolson. So there's the other side of the argument Mm -hmm. there. That even though the intention might have been good, it really wasn't. It didn't come across that way. To some people. To some people, right, right. right. Although, as we said, the black community tended to support. Yeah. Apparently, as a guy, as a man, he was at times irascible and not very approachable. And at other times, he was extremely generous. And some people said he was very insecure. For the Korean conflict, when he went over there to entertain the troops, apparently he paid his own way. Mm -hmm. In that sense, he was very committed to his country. Mm-hmm. and to supporting the people who were protecting his country. He was the forerunner of Bob Hope, when you think about it. Yeah, right? that's right. What Bob right. was doing. Right. As uh, Jolson diminished a bit, Bob Hope was one of those people who was wrong with Bing Crosby and mm-hmm. Frank, came up and filled that void in the 30s and into the 40s. The other thing Al Jolson did was he actually gave James Cagney a boost in his career. Oh. That's little known, but he helped him along, and there was some film adaption to a play, I think it was Yankee Doodle Dandy, Dandy, that he acquired and passed over to these producers and said, Cagney's the one for the role. For the role. And so Cagney, who was a serious actor, is now singing and dancing. And he's brilliant in that. If you ever see... Oh, yeah, I saw Yankee that Yeah, and he's dancing on a ship or it's all kinds yeah, of things, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, he really, he became a big star in a way after that, thanks to Al Jolson. Well, Yankee Doodle Dandy is his trademark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All we can say is that, you know, he was a very special man. Yeah. Doing really unusual things, given his background, having to fight the whole way to break free of the Jewish tradition and his father's being a rabbi, all of that, the father did not look upon his career kindly mm-hmm. at first. Right. And then making these memorable songs. Through two world wars. Through two world wars, yep. Doing all this sacrificial stuff and then dying fairly young. He shouldn't be forgotten. He shouldn't be just swept away. Um, I don't think he will. And this is one of the advantages that we have with technology, you know, as we talked about earlier, you know, with regards to the internet and YouTube and so on. A lot of this stuff is resurfacing. uh, Yeah, it's amazing. And it's wonderful that you can dial up the first talkies Mm -hmm. and up pops the jazz singer. 
And I love using guys like him or situations like that as examples when I'm talking to people who are always inquiring about buying better things, better equipment. Yeah. And my comment to them is your equipment's only as good as your performance. Exactly. There isn't any microphone or there isn't any camera that's going to make you that much better. Yep. And here's a guy did it with literally nothing. That's right. He was a total natural. Live performances, no microphones. That's right. Quite a challenge. Yeah, a great man and a great song. And speaking of recording, uh, we have a little recording button in our podcast uh, right. site where you can leave comments. Mm-hmm. And we want you to give us your best Al Jolson imitation. And if you give us permission, we'll play it on the air. Go to the silpodcast.com and there's a little button. You just press it, record. You can play it back to yourself. If you're afraid to send it right away, you don't like it, you can re-record it. Yep. We've received a couple of them already. Yeah, and be sure to preface your statements with, you ain't heard nothing yet. <laughs> Great way to close, Harry. I think so, too. Ciao. Ciao. <laughs> we'll leave it. Synchronized chowing. The Sill Podcast, Perspectives on Art and Technology, is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. Baby, with that big fee, mellow.